Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 82 of the Corona Diaries. Uh, and Mr Steve H is in a hotel room, I believe, in Wales. No, I'm on, an, I'm on a 747 uh, travelling between Cardiff and Cardiff at the moment, hence all the terrible noise. I've spoken to the cabin crew and they said there's nothing I can do about it unless we're going to crash. So they have to keep those going. But really, you're yeah, in a hotel really room in Cardiff. In a hotel room in Cardiff. In a forced How... ten gale. <laughs> in a forced ten gale. I've got to ask before we reveal the little secret or the little surprise. How's it going so far? Because you're two dates in, aren't you? It's going very well. Um, considering we sort of lost a few days of rehearsal at the end, and we've got loads of new crew uh, all frantically trying to make sense of everything. Um, It's been a little bit clunky technically, but I don't think anybody's noticed, um, apart from the band, you know, so they're coming off stage a bit, couldn't hear that, and that wasn't right, this wasn't right, but uh, it's gone really well. It's gone really well. Mm. I've I've been amazing. (laughs) And apparently Pete's been a bit on fire as well, apparently. He has, he's in fine form, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he always was, really. Once he stopped drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Enough of that. Um, <laughs> we better we better introduce our, our surprise, our special guest, because we yes. we normally do special guests on, on zeros, don't we? Zero shows, 70, 80, 90, that kind of thing. But we've we've brought in an even even specialer guest for 82. The most special guest. Special. The most special guest. And we've been teasing you with this one for a while, but we have we have Mr. Chris Neal with us. Uh, afternoon, Chris. How are you? Good afternoon. How are you? Well, I'm, do you know what? I'm really well. And thank you, because I never normally get asked. So thanks, Chris. That's really nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really well, thank you. Uh, lovely to see you. But how are you? You're looking, you're looking particularly fine, I must say. Well, it's, uh, I have a confession. I've just come back from sunny climbs. First time in two years I've been on a plane. And, and uh, there was a, like, 10-day window in Cyprus, so I grabbed it and just... Right did absolutely bugger all for 10 days, except lying on a lounger and uh, wondering when all this malarkey is going to be over. It agrees with you. Oh, thank you very much. That yes. lying on a lounger agrees, agrees with you. I agree that it agrees with me. You agree that it agrees with you. Um, well, we've referenced you quite a lot over previous uh, weeks. We've done quite a bit on, on holidays. It seems yeah. to be something, actually, we keep coming back to. So it's, it's lovely to talk to you, and, and obviously we'll try and talk a bit about that. But also... Um, the, the fact that you seem to have a particular talent when it comes to, to rhyme, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and so, which is something I think we'll explore. But before, before we start, the one thing I've got to say, and I apologise, H, I'm going to dive in for a bit here, but I was looking through your, your uh, Wikipedia page and, and the stuff you've been involved in, which is incredible and well worth checking out. But the bit I couldn't get past was you produced the theme tune to Minder. Yeah. I did, yeah. Because that's just down to the fact that Dennis Waterman and I were mates. I say were, bless him, he lives in Spain now. I haven't seen him for quite a while. Um, we shared the same manager, and um, when I first met him, he took me to a pub called the Turk's Head in Twickenham, and uh, I had what the French call the weekend that went away. I just basically lost 48 hours. Uh, of being with them, and after that, uh, we became really, really good mates. And then he said, "Look, we're doing this news show called Minder. 
and uh, they want a song from me. And, uh, and, you know, I was working with a guy called Gerard Kenny at the time, uh, who was like a Billy Joel. In fact, he was in the band with Billy Joel back in the day. And they got together, came up with this song, and uh, bang. Uh, I, I, I just decided to... I did an album with Dennis in the end uh, for EMI um, because of the success of, of the Minder theme. But it was just no nonsense. I got I got a uh, you know really good session drummer in, bass player, keyboard, and then a whole bunch of old brass players, and we said we want this real ragtime New Orleans type thing. And of course, it's, you know, he preaching to the converted. That was, that was the river they swam in when they were kids. You know, so uh, they just I mean literally a couple of takes and they just banged it. And there was I can hardly remember. <laughs> recording it to be honest i heard it on the radio last week and i i, I thought it sounded great you know i mean I, I didn't know we were going to talk about it but i was thank you i heard it on the radio and thought that's a really good sounding record you know terrific well you know you know what it's like steve sometimes in the studio things just slot in mm. and everything works you know usually you've got a it's a bit of a pain because of this that and the other on that session, uh, came in, bish, bash, bosh, done. I mean, the whole thing was done in literally, you know, three or four hours. Amazing. And then, then it went on to mix it. But the, sometimes it drops in your lap, doesn't it, Steve? Sometimes like things like that just drop in no. work. No, never. No, not for you. <laughs> <laughs> after about, okay, six, well, it doesn't after about six months, it drops in our lap. Oh. <laughs> It doesn't happen very often to me, I'll admit, but uh, it was just one of those sessions that it all worked, everything, and Dennis, you know, was really into it and just sang it straight away, you know, perfect, so. And then we, we had no idea that the uh, series was going to be so popular. Mm. I know mm. the Turks yeah, I mean, the series was in, massive. in Twickenham. That's where Chaz and Roy used to play in the Turks. I, right. used, I used to go and watch them cry no more. Hysterical. Well, the weird, really? the weird thing about Turk's Head is you could go down on a, like a Wednesday or a Tuesday night and Clapton would get up and play. It was, it was something about that pub. I don't know if it was a catchment area for, you know, all and sundry mm. stars, but there was just, they just turned up. <laughs> and it was a quite mm. amazing little place. And your, your discography, um, because there's a thing on your Wikipedia page, which is just the, the songs you've worked on that were, that were top ten. Yeah, and and it's it's littered with these tunes that were the ones I grew up through. So starting with Sheena Easton and and you know so you know Modern Girl and what have you and working through the list. Yeah, and and so you've got this this you've got this this list of uber uber songs that became uber uber hits, um, and then you met Steve. <laughs> we were Chris's acid test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean that that's your that's your running, isn't it? Because I mean that that period for you from from what eighty through to when did you guys meet? Ten years later, but nineteen ninety one wasn't it? Eighty nine, ninety something like that. Yeah, ninety, I think. Holidays. Yeah. Well, basically, I, I was you know like when I was a kid, I was in vo vocal groups, you know, Four Seasons and Beach Boys and all that sort of stuff. So I loved harmony, I loved vocals, uh, and. I was a massive fan of the three-minute pop song. Just did it for me. Be my, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Three minutes, one of the best records ever made, ever, in my opinion. So that was, that was where I was coming from. I just loved, I loved pop music. I really did like, I mean, there was crap pop music and good pop music, and I was, I was striving to make good pop records. And that's what it was all about. It was nothing cleverer than that, really. The first big record, um, the first hits I had were with a guy called Paul Nicholas. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, Paul I, I do. Just good friends, Paul Nicholas. And, and Yeah, exactly. Now, they were out-and-out out pop. I mean, they were childish pop, but kids' records almost, Dancing with the Captain, Grandma's Party. But then I made a, a record called Dancing in the City with Marshall Hayne, yeah. the duo called Marshall Hayne. With the clap that's uh, late. The, with the late clap, yeah. Which wouldn't exactly. have been any good if it had been on. It's, exactly a huge, right. it's a huge hook, isn't it, that like clap? Uh, and um, from then, because I didn't take it seriously prior to that, but once that took off, then the phone started going and that was it, really. I was off and running. Mm. And then it's a, it's a, a really great a, a really great mix because, I mean, you've got this Amazulu in there, there's yeah. Mike and the Mechanics in there, Paul Carrick's in there, uh, 
Celine Dion's in there. Yeah. Cher. Yeah. Cher, who sang backing vocals on Be My Baby. She was 16 years old. You're kidding. Sonny Bono. Sonny, yeah. Sonny Bono did the, uh, uh, was the MD. And it was, and uh, um, uh, Spectre said it wanted a lot of people who could say, anyone can sing. He was pulling people in. This is what she told me. And Sonny said, my girlfriend sings. She, uh, so she said, I, I sang backing vocals. And I said to her, can, can I have your autograph? Not because you share. I don't give a shit you share. But you sang backing vocals and be my baby. Jeez. So she, that made her laugh, actually. I don't give a shit you share. I think we've <laughs> got an episode you. title. That's yes, that, I don't that's give a it. shit. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Oh, you arrive at Meridian. You arrive at Meridian with exactly that pedigree, and that and that's the point, isn't it? Well, I think what happened. Uh, it was it was the label EMI. I, th- I think essentially all record labels are just interested in selling records. They're not really that worried about integrity. They obviously want to keep the fans of whichever actor is, and they keep that heavily in mind. And the marketing people are saying, well, who are we selling this to? But at the end of the day, they want to see all their acts, their bands, their solo artists on the telly, plastered all over the radio. That's what they want to see. And I think I was brought in because I was the commercial guy who'd had hits with Mike and the Mechanics, which is probably mm. the closest you could closest. get to, Mar- uh, to Marillion. And... Um, and their thinking was, come and work with Marillion. We want them plastered over the radio and on the television. And I was, you know, fine with that because, you know, from the sidelines, I've watched Marillion, a fabulous band. Um, but I was concerned that I was being put in there and they didn't want me to be there because that's never going to work. Um, and I said to Nick Gatfield at EMI, I said, look, I'd love to do this, but only if they're up for it. I don't want to be there if they, if they don't want me to be there. So that was that was the starting point, really. Which is the point you come in H then? So well, we how did a, that conversation? We made a fine album, really. I, I've I've always thought Holidays in Eden's a great record, and I thought it had a great mm. sound, and the process of recording it was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, it was. We had a good time, didn't we? Um, we did. So you know, I've got to say this. Um, uh, I've said it before somewhere, but basically all every producer's dream in it over a calendar year is to start work in September, work all the way through the horrible winter, finish in May, early summer, and have the rest of the summer off. And now it's never ever worked out for me except that one year. I started in September with Mike and the Mechanics. No, sorry, with the Moody Blues. I did four tracks on the Moody Blues. Then I went into a Mike and the Mechanics album called The Word of Mouth. And I came out of that into the new year to do Marillion, three M's. And when I got to, uh, where were we? Outside Studios. Yeah, who can? When I got there to work, to start Holidays in Eden, and to be honest, I was absolutely knackered. And I thought, this is, this is going to be a tough gig. Within days of working with the guys, and especially the roadies, I had laughter lines. My wife said to me, you've, got la- you've been laughing, I can tell. And it was such an enjoyable experience. I mean, obviously there was work to do and, you know, get things sorted. But it was just fun. And I'd forgotten what a real working band with real working roadies who had a fantastic sense of humour. I'd forgotten how enjoyable that could be. And it was... Uh, I stopped being tired. I stopped. I just loved the whole process of holidays in Eden. I got really of all the stuff I've done. I'm not just blowing smoke here. Of all the stuff I've done, it's a really nice reflection and memory. Yeah, same for me. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I mean, Hookend was always a lovely place to be. Yeah, um, Hookend. Sorry, I've seen some. Um, you, the, if if you look on YouTube, there's actually some footage of kids going round Hookend now. And it's really, really spooky because it was just left to rot, and it's all the wallpapers fallen off, and it, it's oh, it's sad. just been totally abandoned, or it has mm. on that sort of YouTube footage. Uh, and I yeah. found it really disturbing because I had such happy memories of the place. And I went, oh, there's my bedroom! Yeah. My God, what they've done! <laughs> um, 
and um, I think some bloke, uh, some scouser, made a load of money in Russia, and uh, and has now bought it and is doing it up. So uh, may, maybe it'll be restored to its its former glory. So uh, yeah, we had a good time at Hooken. We had a good time the time before doing Season's End as well. Mm. Return there, and it was snowing. I've got pictures of Hooken in the snow. Yeah, it was snowing. Yeah, I remember uh, somebody vaguely driving on the road to the pub. Not always went exactly on the Queen's Highway at no. every given moment. No, I, I do remember <laughs> following Mark Kelly up a lane one evening, and the, there were the telltale tire tracks that actually went up and down a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's gonna be happy days. So it sounds like it sounds like you you fitted in in terms of the vibe and the the band pretty much from the get go. Then, and it, and it, well, it, it, to be honest, um, after the a world of three minute pop songs, uh, when you start working with Mike with Mike Rutherford, Mike and the Mechanics, you mm. have to adjust that that you know. The, the dynamic there, because he's from a band that is not, uh, well, certainly wasn't originally three-minute pop songs. So you you, you get to appreciate um, things. And I've always been a real, real sucker for lyrics. And and at school, I was, uh, you know, I love poetry, but I was brought up in part of Manchester where if you said you like poetry, you really had the shit kicked out of you within minutes. And Steve came early days rehearsals to uh, with the party mm. with the party and i remember i uh, one of my favorite liverpool poets is a guy called brian patton and he he'd written a poem called portrait of a of a girl raped at a suburban party or something like that and when i when i saw steve's or when i heard steve's lyrics i just thought wow this is this is brian patton with music this is just brilliant and it was the it was the lyrical story content that I loved about Marillion. It was the narration, you know what I mean? It wasn't just I love you, you love me, daddy, daddy, daddy. Um, there, was, there was plots, there was little one-act plays, there was all sorts of stuff going on. And that really, I mean, I was had EMI saying, where's the singles? But, you know, so we, but I had to wear that hat. But at the same time, other tracks on Holidays in Eden just fascinated me because it wasn't a river I naturally swam in. Um, but I love being there. Yeah, because you you touched there straight away on the bit that probably you know was hoping to get to, which is it, which is that that dynamic between the record company and the band. You're in the middle, um, and 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 H. I imagine different because it's not just the band as a united thing, is it? You'll all have had slightly different takes on on what Marillion was at that point and the direction they were going in and 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 the and songs and what have you and, and how holidays would turn out, I imagine. Yeah, it was a tough album to to write. It took us ages because when I when I met the band, um, they'd already got a load of music. They they were kind of doing their thing and I was just sort of welded on and did my thing and that was that. And it was really quick and easy. But when we came to make Holidays in Eden, we were starting from scratch. And that was the point at which, without really thinking too much about it, kind of see these things more clearly in the rear view mirror. But but at, at, the, at that time, that was the point at which we were trying to define what the band would become. Uh, and so it was really difficult because nobody... No one knew what it was going to become and everybody was frightened of what it might become. Um, so there was that. And everybody was frightened for different reasons. <laughs> Each of the five of us. You know. <laughs> and so I think Rothers was frightened. Uh, Mark was frightened. Ian was frightened. I was frightened that it had become what I call furry boots prog. Um I wanted, I wanted to push it, you know. If it was, if it was going to be progressive, I wanted it to be talk, talk progressive. So they were my fears, and I think other members of the band were, 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 were worried about, you know, me and EMI between us turning it into a pop group with the help of Chris. 
So, mm. and, which is not what I wanted to do anyway. But I think everybody was a little bit, on you know, nervous and scared about where it might go. Which which is why it took such a long time to write. I think. Mm. So that the thing there is that's a little bit. In one respect, I get that. In another respect, it seems a little bit odd when you. When you think about something like Sugar Mice or if you think about something like Kaylee, I mean, Kaylee particularly, Kaylee's a three-and-a-half-minute pop song. I mean, I'll probably get slammed for saying that. But but that's to me, that's what it always was. It was the, it was the biggest radio tune of that summer. Um, so the we, EMI wanted to do that again. Yeah. Uh, not exactly the same, obviously, but wanted to just to mirror that type of exposure and success that Marillion had. Um, across Europe, not just in the UK. Um, they were a big band. Do you, were there any specific, I suppose to throw this to both of you, any specific examples of particular tension on a particular track? Tension, I don't remember. Uh, I asked Ian to play some electronic drums and he really wasn't happy with that. And I was telling him that on the mechanics, Peter Peter Van Hook, um, who was you know old school drummer but loved all the all the new innovation and all the electronica, he was up for hitting anything that had a weird sound. He just thought it was excellent. Um, Ian was a bit uh, look. I don't you know I play these drums the way I play them, and I said I'm not having no issue with the way you play and how you play, um, but I'm just trying to put a few different kind of stranger noises on there and I got a little bit of stuff from Ian about that um and you know it, on reflection he was probably right because it, it might have ended up being more like the mechanics than it was in Marillion so that's all I can remember really the less the, the rest of the time I remember it was a lot of work there was a lot to do but um I just remember laughing most of the time to be honest <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember any, but that's probably it. Just that that uneasy and had with with, you know, hitting the plastic hexagons instead of the, um, mm. you know, instead yeah. of proper drums. If, well, well I was, yeah, I think what it was that I didn't, I wasn't very good at, at um, you know, explaining myself. I, I didn't want to replace the drums. I wanted to add some weird sonics within a real drum kit uh, so it wasn't just you know electronica um but it, he does what he does and he does it great and um then i realized no this is marillion this is how this bus is driven by ian um so you know that's the way it is because hmm. the obvious one i think that i always think of that changed through that period was i heard splintering heart on the tour before you started work on the album. Mm. And that was the one that started with the kind of weird guitar-y type riff thing, um, you know, based around a distorted hammer-on-y type of thing that that um, Rothers was doing. And then by the next time I'd heard it, that had changed. That first section of the song had changed beyond recognition. Mm. Um, I mean, if you listen back to the demo version, by the time you get halfway through the song, it's more in the format that the final finish thing was um yeah how did that kind of come about was that just uh something happened and it was work oh well i don't know about you steve i remembered uh it was mark and steve messing around they were they were i mean it was very early days of all this so there's very early days of sampling and, yeah, yeah. and loops and all that and they were messing around and they had this for me, it was quite haunting. And I think, I mean, Steve might correct me on this, we were going to just have it as an intro. And then when the vocal started, we would it would probably be more like the band. But Steve was singing over it in the control room while it was still rolling. And I remember thinking, that's really... You know, I got the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I thought, this is really cool. And then I don't know how the discussion came, but we decided to literally let it roll until, but not as much as this. Uh, yeah. And then the band came in. Yeah, I, um, I much preferred you, it. 
know, compared to when it had first been conceived, Steve had this thing, and it was like wall of noise from the word go. And I remember we we played a show down in Bass in a little club called the Mulls Club, and um, we played it like that before we we got serious about recording it. And of course, it just didn't have any dynamic range. It just came in full on and stayed full on, had nowhere to go, and and what it gained from from that spooky rolling electronic intro was, you know, it, it it's it's it, it's suddenly got a massive place to go dynamically, and then it drops in the middle, so that it it's got it's got a lovely light and shade about it. But it, it, it always remains a little bit spooky. I remember you calling me um, when you went out on the road after the album was recorded and you said Splintering Heart is one of the best openings of the show. It still is, uh, to be honest. It's one of, I mean, even all these years later, there, there are, you, you couldn't rely on it to open a show mm. because it, it works on so many levels, you know, it works dramatically. Yeah. I sometimes stand, I've been known to stand in, um, you know, on balconies and sing that first bit and then run like really? hell when the band comes in and try, try, try and get to the stage by the time I've got to sing the next bit. Usually with my legs covered in blood where I've fallen off over stairs. And <laughs> but it is a great, it's a great opener. I've told this story before, not to you, uh, Chris, whenever I hear that song now, I always hear, and then the kick drums go, 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 go. And I think there's like, I don't know, there's eight lots of those before I sing, and I have to count them, or, or everything goes to shit. And I was in uh, Philadelphia doing this gig, and uh, I'd got the long black coat on and all of that, and the, got the vibe going. I was at the side of stage, and it goes, gong, gong. I think, right, that's one, gong, 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 gong. And, and I got to about three, and this bloke appeared, and he went, we'd like you to have this cake on behalf of the American fan club. And I'm going, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. I'm thinking, shit, how many are there now? And, 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 of course, it was all wrong when I got there. And to this day, whenever we play it live, God, God, I think, cake, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's become my main association with that. The, the, the one I must ask you about song-wise, how was, how was working on the This Town trilogy? Um, was that always... Because This Town sounds like something... That, that could have been a, a song in its own, just a, a you know a four minute song in its own right. How did it? How did the, that? Was that always intended to be joined in that way? Um, because it could have, as I say, it could have lyrically as well. It could have been that single story, couldn't it? About the single story about about how you get overtaken and usurped by a town, how it changes who you are, bang, end, mm. and then it moves into a different place. Was it? Either of you remember if that was always. I think it always was when we were, when we were writing it. Um, it it had come from, you know, that feeling of moving from Doncaster down into the smoke, into the big city to try and try and make your fortune or get somewhere, and and to do that with the person you love, only to find that it corrupts both of you, you know, and starts to tear you apart. Um, as, as, as you both realise separate ambitions. So it, was, it wasn't entirely autobiographical, but it was underpinned by things that I'd felt and seen in other people. Um, and then it went beyond that into this kind of jilted character who becomes very cold-hearted and starts to use the, the, the city for his own gains. And it... And it effectively then becomes a whore, you know, mm -hmm. and uses people. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I think it was, you know, lyrically as a journey, it was a natural progression from being hurt to becoming, to becoming the person who goes around hurting people. 
and having and blaming the city for all of it, whether that's fair or not. Because I, I always uh, I always imagined it as a as a trilogy, um, and it was one of those pieces, those three pieces where I kind of just sat back. This was Marillion. This was you know pure Marillion, mm. and there's no concept of three minute single or any of that nonsense. It was just what Marillion were about again this storytelling this narration you know uh, which made it far more interesting than just uh, your average love song so I tended to take a back seat when the guys were uh, working on this little well three act play if you want to call mm. it like that yeah because and they say I've not really thought about that much must have been rattling around my head before but I could I can hear it as a, as a single I could I could make a case and say I could see how that could be how this town could have been absolutely a piece of power pop, you know, because it great great hook hits you instantly, guitar riffs nice and drives all the way through, uh, re- real big hook chorus, you know I get how it could work, but I, I mean obviously now you can't imagine it without how it unfolds after that, um. You know, and, and and to your point, by the time you get to the last part, then we really are into that's a, that's absolute pure Marillion, isn't it? At the end, um, certainly uh, by the time you by the time you get there. Um, what what was the bit? Af- what happened after the album? What how how did how did it go? How did you move your separate ways after that? I I had a really good fry up. <laughs> I remember that I went home and had a really good fry up don't remember much else really <laughs> um, I, I, as I say I had that summer off mm. which was brilliant I remember it just being a fantastic summer you know when you do a job and you think job done mm. I'm happy with that it was that feeling throughout the summer um, so I think I did wax after that, I think it was Andrew Golden, Graham Gouldman. I think, I think, no, no, that was before. I'm talking nonsense. Ignore me again. Yeah, I think that was before because yes, I, it was before. The, yeah. yeah, I remember the single being earlier. I think yeah. I had that album. Yeah, I think I might have it somewhere still. Um, sorry, uh, Steve. No, I can't remember what the hell happened. We must have gone on tour. Uh, of course, because we always you were do. On top of the pops, you were on top of the pops within oh, yes. two, That's uh, true. two months of that. Yeah, we did cover um, my eyes on top of the pops. That's right. Um, that's with right. Um, Tina Turner followed us on and did simply the best, which did rather better, long term. <laughs> uh, and I remember standing at the back in the top of the pop studio watching her doing that, and and just thinking, my God, you've either got it or you haven't, and she just got it in spade. Like oh, she's yeah. just got Absolutely. that thing that you can't, you can't yeah. describe it, you can't bottle it, but she just yeah. radiates class from the moment she walks on stage, and it it was beautiful to watch in a little room with no no people, hardly, you know, it's like twenty four yeah. yeah. people uh, in the top of the pop studios shot so that they look like a hundred and twenty four, but. There's hardly anybody there, and I just I I just went to the back wall and watched her, and I thought, whoa, that's. Fine. I mean, I, to be honest, the song didn't do much for me, although it shows what I know, but um, just her her charisma and her warmth was mm. uh, was wonderful to behold. Absolutely. Well, when um, you did Top of the Pops with the cover my yeah cover my eyes. Um, I kind of thought, well, you know, that's going to keep EMI happy. Um, job done in that sense. Um, I was quite relieved about that. But, um, yeah, no, you, I remember you looking and sounding great. So, H and I have talked quite a number of times about um, about No One Can and about the fact that it should have been massive. Yeah. It had everything it needed to be massive. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming you felt exactly the same way. Absolutely. Uh, there was three. There was No One Can, Cover My Eyes, No One Can, and Dry Land that I thought were just great songs. And, you know, went out to make them uh, as singles, as radio singles. Uh, they were the three, I thought, that were mm. that were real contenders 
uh, for the charts. Mm. And bearing in mind some of the other things that you've produced and you would have heard in you you heard them in exactly the same way. So something like Living Years or um something like one of the Sheena Houston tracks or whatever, you 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 heard Cover My Eyes and thought, right, well that's just in the same way the others were, that's just that's that's gone. Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there is there are various formulas. You know, there's, you've got to have a chorus within yeah. a minute, and da, da. but then there's a lot of exceptions to that rule. Uh, but if you have an anthemic uh, chorus like "Cover My Eyes," um, and you've got a band like Marillion who can hack it live on stage, and you've got a following like Marillion had. You you you're you know your foot's in the door because mm. it's gonna it's you've got to make it radio friendly. That's my job. Um, the rest of it is Marillion playing it to their fans, and I my job was to make it a single, but not you know, bar bar black sheep yeah. dance four to the floor. You know what I mean? Not not stupidly so. And I, th- I think we achieved that. Mm. I think it's, I, I, I mean, you might stop me here, Steve. I don't think Marillion is, is a band that is a pop, you know, that needs to be on, you know, they're not hot chocolate. They're, that's not where they live. They, no. They don't need to be top of the pops all the time. It's not that kind of, of career. No, it isn't. Um, I mean, there's never any harm in, you know, in getting a bit, now and again, a bit of yeah. telly or getting a bit of radio play. And... Yeah. I've been plagued, really, over the years by the fact that Kaylee was such a big hit. I've never escaped it. And we've never had a hit on that level that could could wipe that away. Um, and that's, that's a regret for me. But I wouldn't swap any of it. I wouldn't swap. No. I wouldn't swap no. any aspect of, of the music we've made... Uh, the relationship that we've had together, the five of us as a band. And I think, um, you know, if we'd have had a bunch of serious radio hits, we'd have all been living in much bigger houses, but we probably wouldn't have been still together. And we wouldn't have made a lot of the music we've made since. So we have exactly. we have been in that very lucky place where we could be ourselves and be self-indulgent about it. And and just create our own art with our own mm. agenda, and and manage to make a living. And and it, I think m- most artists would 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 have that any day Absolutely. of the week over over the next hit single hanging over them. You know, if 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 it doesn't happen, it's over. Um, yeah. Because I remember what it was like to be in that position and it's a very insecure place to be and you do feel like your life is entirely in the hands of other people which is it is and you get you get to the point like um boney m you know ridiculous amounts of hits sold ridiculous amounts of records but then it stopped when it stopped it stopped And, and there was no fan base there were, it was just a yeah. pop record base. And when they stopped producing pop records, despite all that success, there was nothing there. There was no no depth. There was uh, nothing left. That's really interesting uh, because actually ABBA's probably exception, ABBA had it? the day before you came and ABBA had... Um, I don't want to talk. What was that one? The winner yeah. takes it all. Yeah. ABBA had yeah. something yeah. you could believe in and Boney yeah. M didn't. And at the end yeah. of the day, you got to have something you can believe in. Exactly, and also ABBA were a you know you went to see them and it was a a big band. It was a big sound. Mm. Um, I'm not trying to decry Boney M. They had fantastic record success, but it wasn't a live band. It wasn't uh, you know there was there was no gestation period where the bass player left and the this that and the, you know it was kind of stuck together mm. um, even then and. You could tell when the hit stopped; it all just fell apart. Mm. Um, we'll take a we'll take a breather and go for a bit of diary. Um, I think you're in uh, LA, aren't you? Um, I'm in I'm in uh, Laguna Laguna Hills. I think Laguna I'm Hills. In. I don't know. Orange if, County. Is that where it is? <laughs> I think it's Orange County, isn't it? <laughs> well, I was there. Where you were there? Uh, with the family at the time. 
Yeah, let me take you to Laguna in California. Sunday, 24th of August, Holiday Inn Laguna Hills, Room 411. San Juan Capistrano, the coach house. There was a bump in the night which woke me up from a light sleep. I got out of bed to investigate and immediately trod upon Nile in the darkness. He'd fallen out of bed without waking. I lifted him back onto the bed he's sharing with Sophie and I returned to the bed that I'm sharing with Sue. Not long after that, he woke up with a nightmare, so I gave him a drink of water. I think I was asleep once more when he shrieked and woke up again with another bad dream. A naughty man is chasing me, he said. I climbed into bed with him and gave him a cuddle until he was properly calm and asleep. By nine o'clock, everyone was up and about except me. I felt duty-bound to try and have a lie-in today. It's the first show tonight. So Sue took the children down to breakfast and onto the pool, leaving me alone. I couldn't sleep, so I read for a while. Too tired to get up, too awake to sleep. At 10.30, I gave up, got up, showered and wrote this before making my way downstairs. Maybe a swim will wake me up. When I arrived poolside, Sophie and Nile were swimming and Sue was just drying off. I sat with my legs dangling in the water, hoping to see Nile repeat yesterday's feat. He swam a breadth of the pool for the first time, but he wasn't in the mood today. I was out of phase with everyone as usual and they were ready to return to the room to shower and pack just as I was settling down by the pool. I hung around in the baking sun and read another chapter of Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky before swimming a couple of lengths in order to cool down. Around one we took the bags downstairs and checked out. I can't say I would recommend two days at the Holiday Inn Laguna Hills. Confusion reigns. We ordered chicken nuggets for the children, which they tucked into while I strapped the cases onto the roof of Tina's space wagon thing and then drove down the freeway a couple of exits to San Juan Capistrano. There were already one or two fans outside the entrance to the coach house. No one commented on my peculiar mode of arrival, as if interrupted from a camping holiday. They simply said, Hi Steve, nice to see you back here after so long. We made our way inside. It took me a minute to recognise anyone on stage. Simon had had a haircut. Stuart and Alan were under the stairs grappling with a transformer. I soon noticed the familiar figure of John Wesley, our Florida guitar tech and opening act. He's his usual affable self and hasn't aged a day since the last time I saw him in 95. Alan appeared to say hello, and Niall latched onto him and assumed the role of assistant lighting designer for the rest of the afternoon. Ian Mosley arrived with Jean, who's from Hollywood down the road, and her sister Joe, and Joe's husband Peter. Peter is an optician to the stars and eye surgeon, and Joe is a clinical psychologist here in L.A. It was Peter who supplied me with replacement Armani Sunspecs after I lost my own in Brazil recently, so I'm indebted to him. As for clinical psychology, well, I guess she's got her hands full in L.A. The whole place is a madhouse. Bit by bit the sound check evolved, beset by the customary first gig hums and glitches. It took an age... And when the doors were opened at 6.30, we still weren't ready. I said bye-bye to Sue, Sophie, Niall, Tina and the twins, who were all going back to the Sunset Marquee Hotel, and spent the next couple of hours sitting on the roof of the venue, watching the sun go down and the people entering the club. There were also interviews with a Mexican university radio station and the US fan club kids who are filming tonight's show. 
Our expectations of tonight's performance weren't high. We have a new monitor man, Gary, new keyboard tech, Carrick, house PA, and Stuart Every is trying his hand at out front sound for the first time. Notwithstanding all of this, and the fact that the band haven't played for a couple of weeks, I really enjoyed the show. The crowd were fantastic, despite being forced to sit at tables, and the band played well, apart from a dodgy moment during Estonia when I was plagued by the throat frog. My sound was, on the whole, quite manageable, and after the show, I met most of the audience at a signing session by the door, and everyone seemed to be over the moon with the gig. The trip back to LA was further than I expected and seemed interminable along Uncle Sam's potholed freeways in a minibus with sponges for suspension. I got off to a bad start at the Sunset Marquee Hotel by not being able to make my room key open the door. I had to return to reception for a replacement. This must seem like no big problem to you, dear reader, but at 2am and after a show, I tend to be exhausted physically and mentally and all the straws are last straws. I have lost count of the number of times I have traversed elevators and half-mile-long hotel corridors, dragging suitcases and carrying bags, coat hangers, bottles, laptops, and God knows what in the middle of the night, completely knackered, to get to a room which wouldn't open. At times like this, you'd almost prefer to lie down and sleep in the corridor than go back to reception. When I eventually found my way into the right room and the right bed, in the darkness, I lay there feeling so tired I privately wondered if I was up to this life anymore. I think last night's kiddie nightmare hell hadn't helped. Tuesday, 26th of August. Los Angeles to San Francisco, Fillmore West. Woke up feeling tired but determined to enjoy breakfast by the pool before our departure from the Sunset Marquee at 10am. I was unable to shower last night so I crept into the bathroom and did so. When I emerged, Sue was already up and in the bathroom of the adjoining room. Sophie and Niall were up and about and Tina knocked on the door to say that Rocco and the girls were all up so I went down to the courtyard and the waiters pushed together a few tables so we could all have breakfast together. It was all a bit of a rush, of course, but we checked out only a few minutes late. I made sure at reception that Tina wouldn't be charged too much after we'd gone. Tina and Sue were both tearful upon our departure. Sisterly love and living on separate continents. They say they'll try and visit us before Christmas. The trip to the airport took an hour or so in the spongy minibus. I took a couple of pictures of everyone standing about at the terminal. I'm trying to keep some record of this tour in pictures also. The flight up to San Francisco was scenic. We flew along the coastline which remained permanently visible below the cloudless sky. The sea gave way to a white line of beach adjoining a flat plain which suddenly rises up into mountains. I was too tired to enjoy the view for long and slept a little. At San Francisco Airport, we boarded a minibus, band Tim, Jean, Sue, Sophie and Nile, to downtown San Francisco and the Triton Hotel, which is lovely and arty and brilliantly situated in the middle of everything. Sophie and Nile had been given a separate room, but seemed happy and unfazed by this first-time experience. We took a walk up through Chinatown, looking at the shops, oriental artefacts, large and small, expensive and cheap. Niall bought a little Mandarin hat, he likes hats, and Sophie bought some beaded slippers. Sue saw much of interest, but seemed not to want anything. She's not a particularly material creature. I had to go to soundcheck, so I left them browsing and returned to the hotel where we were due to assemble at four o'clock. On my way back to the hotel, I spotted a little lamp in the window of one of the shops. It was to be a monumental moment as I ambled in to enquire about the price. I met the owner, Jacob. 
he's a Lebanese Jew who's in the process of, quote, selling off his grandfather's estate, unquote. And the lamp was $1,200. Yep, monumental. Thank you, I said, turning to go. Jacob's a born salesman, though, as I was to discover. He asked me how much I thought it was worth. Make me an offer, he said. Out of the air, I plucked a figure of $500 and we struck a deal at $550 for cash. It was a very nice lamp. It said galley on it. If it was genuine, then it would indeed have been worth over a grand. But that wasn't the point. I simply thought it was a beautiful thing. He asked if I was a musician and I said yes. One thing led to another. He likes Pink Floyd and the Doors. So I figured we'd be right up his street. I told him I would leave two tickets on the door for him at the Fillmore tonight. He wrapped the lamp for me and I took it to soundcheck. It was of a deep red-orange glass with a bulb in the base as well as the main bulb beneath the glass shade. I took it from the bubble wrap and plugged it in. Unfortunately, the bulb in the base had blown. Shame. I'll have to pop back in the morning and see if I can find a replacement bulb. I wrapped it back up again. The Fillmore's a great gig with a greater history. It's a 1500 capacity hall with two lines of beautiful chandeliers hanging along its length. There's a narrow balcony along the side of the auditorium with tables and chairs. Perfect for Sophie and Niall who can watch us from the balcony seat overlooking the edge of stage right with access to our adjacent dressing room. Soundcheck went well and betrayed few of the problems awaiting us at the show to follow. I returned to the hotel and a fan outside the Fillmore handed me a box of chocolate-covered strawberries. I went to bed for half an hour to sleep. I already felt like I'd done a gig. It had been a long day. Well, we didn't get off to a good start. The show was delayed by a technical problem with the bass pedals. When we eventually got on stage, my guitar wasn't plugged in at the amp, so I spent most of Lap of Luxury getting it sorted out. With each new song, a new technical malfunction arose. I had problems with the mic and the monitors which ruined Estonia. The bass guitar went down for most of Easter. And although I tried to remain cool, eventually it got the better of me and my nerves and temper began to fray. Throughout all this, the crowd were amazing, incredibly supportive and enthusiastic from beginning to end, and stomping for a third encore long after we'd called it a day and were back in the dressing room trying to make sense of what had gone wrong technically. I decided that alcohol was the best course of action and poured a tequila and orange. Diz was on the JD and Cokes. We wobbled back to the hotel and put Sophie and Niall to bed. Once again, they'd both been really well behaved all night. Niall had dozed off during the show, but Sophie, bless her, had watched every minute. And we're back. Uh, and we're not going to talk diary this week for a couple of reasons. One, because none of us have read it, so we couldn't have a conversation about it anyway. But also because we've still got Chris with us and we want to carry on. I want to I want to pick up on the, the bit I really wanted to talk about uh, in all of this, which is um, you you have a history in, in slightly bawdy English sex comedies, don't you, Chris? Um, yes. I wouldn't say a history. I have... Um, <laughs> I had an insatiable... Ab- appetite to pay my mortgage. <laughs> well, what uh, the, would you class as a history? Because you were in, you were in more than one, weren't you? Oh no! What, but basically, what happened was, um, the, you know, back in uh, in another galaxy, far, far away, I was a, an actor because uh, I was in Hair, Jesus Christ, played JC and Jesus Christ Superstar, and. I did. I was in Rock Follies. I don't know if you remember that. You know, um, back in the Julia day. Julia Covington. Julie Covington. Um, was she Julie? Julie Covington. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, um, the agents rang up and said, "Look, they've seen you in uh, Rock Follies, and they want to do these two uh, sex comedies." 
And I said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And they said, they're comedies, Chris. They're not, they're not to be taken seriously. And I went to see the director, a guy called Stan Long, who owned, did all these uh, adventures films. And he had Barry Evans and... Anyway, I went to see him and immediately got on with him. He made me laugh. And he said, look, these are carry-on films with the bra off. And we're going to offer you six... <laughs> Six thousand pounds. That's a great quote, isn't it? The carry on it's films with the, with the bra off. He said, "We're going to offer you six thousand pounds for two films." Now, in nineteen seventy, what have they? Seventy five, seventy six, six, six. My mortgage was nine thousand pounds, so it was a whole lot of money. And then he said, "Look, if you have some of the box office, if you have some of the royalties from this, we'll give. We won't give you as much money now, but you'll have." some royalties and I thought this this pile of crap's not going to see the light of day so I'll have the money when it opened it opened as the B movie remember B movies mm. it opened as the B movie to Kentucky Fried Movie at the Empire in Leicester Square <laughs> so suddenly I thought oh it's a proper it's going to be out there and it's a proper movie right. and of course it did all the ranks and the Odeons and and to this day um, if I'd have paid, I mean, it's on every satellite television, it's everywhere around the world. And Stan, who's uh, who passed away, sadly, um, before he died, we were having some dinner and uh, I said, how much would I have made if I'd have said, I'll take? He said, at my counting, about three to four hundred grand. But hey, you live and learn. What do you do? <laughs> I, but I will say, um, I did have a ball making those. I had a fantastic time. And there was some great people in it. You know, it was Ian Lavender, Lane Page, and the guy from on the bosses, and even the, the great Fred Emney. I don't know if either of you two know who I'm talking about. Mm. Fred Emsey. Huge, fast, old comedian from the 50, 40s and 50s. And uh, Harry Corbett. Oh, the, the whole lot. They were all... Cause, the 70s, was, there was no film industry in the UK. So there were all these really posh people coming to do this piece of crap um, because there was no other work around. Uh, sorry, have I gone off piece to that? No, um, no, no. It's, it's, it's the bit of backstory we need to take us to the next bit because right. you've been introduced to the TCD crowd as 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 the guy who uh who always had a slightly filthy rhyme or a a slightly filthy line um oh, and it is it's h is doing right there, obviously um, there is more to you than that chris yes i have acknowledged well, that well i you know i do just quietly sit and learn i don't come up with this stuff myself <laughs> <laughs> but i must i must see just before H joined the call, because we were on the, already on the call, you changed your backdrop to be a, a four gents stood at urinals. Yes. And you did that with no prompting. No, it's because I've worked with Steve Hogarth. <laughs> I actually thought you were in a gent. It was brilliant. I, I just thought this might make him, you know, it might mildly amuse him. It did. Um, or, or not, you know. Um, it's my feeble attempt at humour. Oh, it worked very well. I wanted I wanted to put everyone at their ease. <laughs> it, 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 it got an instant guffaw. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the chaps behind you was was struggling to go, but apart from that, it was... Yeah, it I think was we were all right. struggling to go. They were there last week as well. <laughs> so come on then, you now need to give us the second verse to this particular, this particular oh, ditty no, this that ages. So you remember Two Shades of Lipstick... On an old French lip. This is sung to These Foolish Things by Noel Two Two shades of lipstick on an old French letter. A dose of syphilis that won't get better. Oh, how my poor thing stings, these foolish things. Remind me of you. Now, if I, before I start the second verse, who's going to see this? I know who's going to see it. No, they're only going to hear it. They're only okay. going to hear it. Are you sure that it's it's not going to you know Doris and Dagenham is not going to write into her MP and complain? Doris and Dagenham will write if you don't finish. Okay, 
So two shares of little old friends, oh how my poor thing stings, these foolish things remind me of you. And this is breathtaking. A blood-stained dildo in a London taxi. The fragrant odour of a horse's jacksy. <laughs> a tampax tied with strings, <laughs> these foolish things. That was there it. we go. I knew there was something about a horse's and I jacksy. Uh, at, the, at the risk of name-dropping, Jerry Rafferty taught me that. Oh, did he? Yes. <laughs> yes. And he would, he was, uh, oh, I love it, he was a strange guy, but I did love him. But basically, he'd sit, he had this demeanour where he'd just be staring into the middle distance and he looked like angry, like he wanted to kill someone. And he'd suddenly go, We sat on a rock, you played with my cock for hours and hours, <laughs> magic. And he'd do it to himself, <laughs> sotto voce, you know, so it, it was hilarious. <laughs> So, are you sure I'm not going to get arrested? No, 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 no. no I don't think you're going to get arrested. No, um, I think I've already spilled most of that, Chris. It, it won't be, um, you know, it, won't, it won't be big news. So, I'll, we'll be in C block when we scrubs together, will we? Yeah. <laughs> Particularly C block. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, no, would you consider coming back and chatting to us again? Yes, of course. No, it's fun. Um, I, to be honest, uh, just something I wanted to say. Uh, the thing that clinched me doing holidays in Eden, wanting to do holidays in Eden, was a song called Easter. Just blows me away to this day. Love it. And when I heard that, I thought, I've got to work with these guys. I've got to work with these guys. Just a beautiful record. Still a beautiful record. Thank you. Well, um. I I came to Marillion about this time. So so Season's End was my entry into Marillion and Holidays, as I've said before, was the first album I waited for as a yeah. fan. Yeah. And and you know, and I feel exactly the same way about Easter. That just everything about it, you know, yeah. bit, including the visuals behind it, the story behind it, everything about it, just absolutely astonishing. The, um yeah, it just works on it. The, the things there are certain things that you listen to and you think I don't care if this never sees the light of day. This is mine. This is my, you know, this is my piece of music. And, and Easter is one of those things. It just does it for me every time. Well, every time, just a little bit of uh, feedback for you. Every time we talk about holidays, we get an amazing amount of, of real positive feedback uh, from people who listen to TCD who, who really love that record. Um, so uh, and 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 it does it every, literally every time we mention it, 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 it gets gets you know an, an enormous amount of positive feedback. So there's right. a lot of people out there who were, you know, thought you did something very special with that. Not not least Janet Gertz, the uh, the guitar player from Iron Maiden. He, he, I, I ran into him one day. He went, oh, that album Holidays in Eden. It's one of my favourite records of all time. Of is that right? Really. I told my um, who to thunk it. My eldest lad is an airline pilot, BA pilot, and I told him this story. Um, one of uh, when we we're doing holidays, one of the roadies is called Smick, yeah, yeah, and I and I, I said I was said one of the roadies was called Smick, and my son said, was he Scandinavian? I said, I said no, 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 no. They were in Germany or Scandinavia, and the promoter came and said, what is your name? And he said, it's Smick. He said, okay, Smick. I told this to my son. He laughed for 10 minutes. He just thought it was the most hilarious thing he'd ever heard in his, in his life. But, um, anyway, guys, it's been a real pleasure. And um, if you want me back to talk bollocks, you know, I've been more than happy. I'm something I'm particularly good at, the older I get. Well, I think we ought to perhaps go for some form of Christmas bollocks special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christmas bollocks. I've just got this 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 vision <laughs> yes, of yes. tinsel and, <laughs> and, and oh, yes. bollocks that tinkle. Please get out of my head. Please get out of my head. All right, guys. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, thank you, Chris. No worries. Take you take care of yourself. Toodaloo. They say we're young and we don't know 
won't find out until we grow. I don't know why that's true, but you got me, and baby, I got you. Babe, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. They say our love won't pay the rent for its own. Our money's all been spent. Well, I guess that's true. We don't have a pot. At least we're sure of all the things we got, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got flowers in the spring. I got you. You purple things, and when I'm sad, you're a clown. And if I get tense, you're always around. So let them say your hair's too long. I don't care. With you, I can't do wrong. So put your purple hand in mine. Thank you, Emma Martin. You're divine, babe. I got purples. I got purples. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.